Good morning, everybody. My name is Joe Kim, and I have the awesome honor of serving as an elder here at South Rogers Park. It has been one of the biggest joys of my life to be able to see and watch how this church has grown. And you came on a Sunday where all the elders across all the locations of Park Community Church deliver the word. And so a minimum of once a year, all the elders across Park are actually asked to teach to prove their qualification of being an elder in 1 Timothy 3. So John McGill and myself will be bringing the word today, and we will continue in our series in Judges, which we have titled, When God is Not King. By the way, i got to give a shout out to my wife, Shannon Kim, who's back there with my seven-month-old Isaac Kim, and we got another one, Caleb, who's probably terrorizing all the other children in the loop right now, so... Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that we get to come before you and listen to your word and to hear from your spirit. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would help us to know your character more and more as we dig into uh, just some of the most challenging passages for us to interpret, for us to know. And so we know with your guidance and with your spirit that you can do a mighty work inside of us. So, Father, I pray that your words would go uh, before everybody right now as we open up your Bible, open up your word, and teach us to be more like you, more like Christ, our great Savior and King. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we are skipping ahead into Judges 6 where we start to embark on the story of Gideon. And next week, Lee Grander will also unpack the second part of Gideon's story. And so we're skipping ahead over Judges 4 and 5, where the story of Deborah and Barak will be covered in a couple weeks. But my big idea today is this. Our circumstances are not a reflection of who God is, what he has done, or what he can do. Over the past two weeks, Jamie and Phil launched us into Judges with these overarching points. The first one, we humans are full of spiritual amnesia. We saw Israel's forgetfulness of God's faithfulness. Sinful humans don't remember what to be true of God, true of what he has done, and how he is true to his own promises. Secondly, Phil unpacked the fact that spiritual amnesia settles into culture We become part of a society that believes there is no God because there are no acts of God. And because there are no acts of God, we believe that God is not fighting our battles with us. Before we get into chapter 6, let me run through a quick summary of what's happened after God restores Israel through Ahud, last week's judge in chapter 3. There is rest for 80 years in Israel. Ahud dies. Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord sells Israel, the the word is sold in the ESV, sells Israel into the hands of the king of Canaan. The Israelites cry out to the Lord. The Lord sends Deborah and Barak to lead Israel to drive out the Canaanites. The Lord routes the Canaanites through them. A woman named Jael kills the Canaanite general with a tent peg. Yes, the tent peg is a weapon in the Bible. God subdues the Canaanite king and overtakes the Canaanites, and at the end of Judges 5, it says the land had rest for 40 years, referencing God's return as Israel's king. And then 
It happens all over again. Read with me in Judges 6, verses 1 and 2. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered them, overpowered Israel. Jump ahead to verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord in account of the Midianites, on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. So here's what's going on. Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord again. The Lord hands them over to Midian. These bad, bad Midianites devour all that Israel has. Crops, produce, their sheep, their ox, their donkeys, their minivans, their bungalows, their smartphones, their chase accounts. The Israelites resettle into the caves and they have very little to go on and the Israelites cry out to the Lord again and then the Lord sends a prophet. It's an unnamed prophet. So the cycle of judges we see keeps on happening. But this time the Lord sends a prophet rather than a judge first. And so the question is why? Why does the Lord send a prophet? This is extremely important. Before Israel can appreciate the rescue that will come, the people need to understand why they need rescuing. This goes back to that spiritual amnesia. Before the people of God can appreciate the rescuing of God, we need to understand why we need rescuing. God wants Israel to understand where their idolatry and sin has led them. So God sends his prophet to convict them of their sin, what's going on in their hearts, before he sends the judge to rescue them from oppression. Israel is regretful, but not repentant. They're crying out. They have regret, but they're not repentant. So everyone say that with me. Regretful, but not repentant. Ready? Regretful, but not repentant. Both regret and repentance are characterized by very deep sorrow and distress, but they are entirely different. Regret does not bring about change. Regret is sorrow over consequences of sin, but not over the sin itself. There is no sorrow for how it grieves God and violates our relationship with him. Then contrast that with repentance. Real repentance focuses in on the only real permanent result of sin. And that's our, relo- our loss of relationship with God himself. Repentance leads us to accept and have, uh, move, or help us move past the things that have happened because we realize God forgives us and that our relationship is actually intact with him. Tim Keller puts it this way, regret is all about us how I'm being hurt, how my life is ruined, how my heart is breaking. But repentance is all about God, how he has been grieved, how his nature as creator and redeemer is trampled on, how his repeated saving actions are being trivialized. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
Let's move on to verses 11 and 12, where we get into Gideon's story. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth and Aphra, which belonged to Joash, Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So God begins to move in his rescuing of Israel by sending his angel to greet Gideon. And Gideon must be tired of losing his food and produce to the Midianites because back in those times, if you were beating out wheat, you'd be at a threshing floor. And a threshing floor would have been in a wide open area so the wind would actually be able to help you beat out the wheat. So he was doing this in a wine press where back in the day, a wine press would have been in the ground where it had probably been a few feet deep where he probably could have hit a bit. The angel calls Gideon mighty man of valor, which could have been like a military reference, or it also could have been like an aristocracy reference, because we know that Gideon had some servants. Let's go to verse 13. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon is questioning God's presence because of the Israelites' circumstances. Gideon's example is like one, someone who knows that God has done great things in the past, but fails to trust him in light of their present reality. So the stories of past deliverance from Egypt are no longer relevant in light of the present-day circumstances. So isn't this the same question that we all have when we ask, why is this happening to me? God, if you are with me, why are you allowing these hard times? God, if you are with me, why can't you help me get out of financial debt? God, if you are with me, Why am I not yet married? God, if you are with me, why is my marriage so difficult? God, if you are with me, why can't you give me a better job? God, if you are with me, why, why, why? I wanted to give a a quick personal story. So Shannon and I met back in 2012. We started dating. We got engaged about seven months later, and we got married six months later. And you could call it happily ever after, right? Right away. Prior to marriage and dating her, though, I'd become a Christian in 2006 here at Park. And I basically uh, had worldly views of dating still. And then as my faith grew, I realized the way that I dated was incorrect. The way that I saw women was incorrect. The way that I uh, didn't honor women, didn't honor the way to go about pursuing women was all incorrect. I took a break from dating, and I waited a couple years. And during that time, there were moments where I would be in my bedroom at my condo, and I would pray, and I would weep. And Shannon's probably like, Joe never cries. (laughs) And I really don't ever cry. And I wanted to share with you all that I was weeping over my own individual circumstance. And given, don't get me wrong, The desires of every person, especially if they're godly desires, are important. But it actually made me question 
God's faithfulness. And it wasn't until the moment where I was like, I came to the conclusion that my lack of not being married was not really indicative of who God is. And as soon as I did, it was almost like a door had been opened to my next level of faith in relationship with the Lord. And oddly during that time, through godly dating, Shannon came into my life. I wanted to share that with you all because our circumstances can get the best of us. And so I have a question for you. Do your circumstances today, or do you have circumstances today that cause you to no longer trust in God? Do you no longer realize the great things that he's already done in your life? Do you blame God for your circumstances? Let's look at verse 14 now. The dialogue between the angel and Gideon continues. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. In response to Gideon's objection, the Lord offers two words of encouragement here. First, God reiterates his promise of presence in the undertaking. Second, the Lord predicts an easy victory over Midian as if he were engaging a single person. Gideon rebuts with reasons why the undertaking is not possible. My family is the weakest in the entire tribe, and I'm the weakest in the family. Gideon's actually right, though. God, or Gideon cannot save Israel in his own strength. Only with God leading the way can he save Israel. However, we must remember that when God calls us, we cannot let our circumstances direct our answer. So how many of us make up excuses to trust in God? It's like Gideon, I have a terrible family background. I don't have the skills. I don't have the time. I have too much fear. I have too much anxiety. Oh, by the way, you have no idea of the sin and the shameful things that I have done. How is it possible that God can use me? Here's the beauty. God uses the weak to accomplish his mission. God uses sinners, just like you and me, to accomplish his mission. God uses those who seem like they should never be the person to lead the way, to lead the way. And so what really we can learn from Gideon here is that God can use you and me in any circumstance that we're in for his mission. So, to reiterate on the gospel, though, in this story, God wants you. God loves you. If you went out last night and you got drunk, God loved you when you were drinking. And God loved you in that circumstance that you're in. If you don't believe in God, he still loves you. If you got fired last week, God still loves you. 
If you're bad at your job, God still loves you. If you are the top performer in your company, God loves you. He can use you and he invites you into his mission. Our sin, our circumstances are not a reflection of who God is or how he loves us. You see, the most daunting circumstance that we all have to face in this life is death. We all are going to face it. That is the great equalizer in this life. We all, no matter how good, no matter how bad, we all have to face that one circumstance. But in God's great mercy for us, he passed that circumstance on to his son so that we may have life in his name. And so life, death, and resurrection of Christ is what truly reflects how God is constant always. And with that, let me bring up John for the next part of Gideon's story. Microphone switcheroo for the first time in Rogers Park history. Joe, thank you for that message, brother, kicking off our sermon worship portion of our day-to-day together here. And uh, yes, I echo your sentiment, Joe. It is undoubtedly a joy to do eldership alongside yourself and Jason alone, one of the joys of my life. And I would also be remiss if I did not mention my wife, Nikki. She has to make a lot of sacrifice for me to prep for this sermon. So a big thank you to my wife. Big thank you to the wives. Very encouraged by their testimony. And so we press forward with the Gideon narrative, which has a ways to go yet, as Joe mentioned. We'll be looking at Gideon next week. In fact, we'll continue with the story. But here now, verse 24, then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Yebezrites. That was the Yebezrites, that was Gideon's clan. Gideon came to a moment of surrender. He encounters God, realized the call that God gave him. Joe did a great uh, unpacking of how we are called to serve God. And thus now, Gideon reacted to the call the only way that you could react if you were face to face with God. Complete surrender. You will often see that in the Old Testament. People are afraid to be face-to-face with God, and they should be. They should be afraid of dying. That is what they believe they thought would happen, and rightfully so, because if you are a sinner, if you are in front of ultimate, pure holiness, all you can do is fear that your dark, sinful self is completely unworthy of existence. That is the trauma of holiness. We are moved by holiness. But God had other plans for Gideon, and Gideon now understood this, so he had to build the altar that God told him to build. He had to bow down in worship. 
Those of us that have an encounter with God and gain salvation encounter God through the presence and work and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. When we come to that moment of surrender, we are finally repentant. We are finally grateful. We are changed. We continue to be changed more into the likeness of the son, Jesus Christ. And thus now Gideon had a new purpose. Going back to the narrative, in verse 25, the Lord further charges Gideon, take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here and with stones laid in due order. Gideon takes down the Baal altar and the Asherah, and he puts in place what should have been there, the altar of the Lord. Not only does God's altar give himself glory, but it also protects the Israelites from the falsehood of the older altar to Baal and all the consequences that come with that. God was caring for his people through the work that he did through Gideon here. So false idols, Baal and Asherah. Who were Baal and Asherah? We see them many times throughout the Old Testament. You may recall Jamie talking about Baal a couple weeks ago. When we first, well, if, if we were to read further on in the Old Testament, we, we normally see in the word that God illustrates good kings and bad kings according to whether, say, they erected Baal altars and Asherah poles or if they took them down. If they took them down, then there was a good chance that they were assessed to be a good king. Baal was the false god most prominent in the Canaanite region. There were several groups of people that worshipped Baal, and he was a compelling figure, so to speak. He was normally depicted as a bull or a strong man with a bull head with horns, and he represented strength and a good harvest. And the Canaanites said this was their favorite god. And so you see, the Israelites, they came from the wilderness. They were a shepherding group. They raised up animals. And when they come into the land of milk and honey, they see a flourishing farmland that the Canaanites are running. And the Canaanites attribute it to their god Baal. And so what do the Israelites do? They are interested. They mingle with the Canaanites. They don't drive them out as God had commanded. They are disobedient there. Rather, they start to intermarry. And they start worshiping Baal. That's why it's so bad you forsake the one true God for a false God because you might get a, a good harvest this year. And I mentioned Asherah. Asherah was actually the female counterpart to Baal. A lot of these ancient Near East gods had male and female counterparts and Asherah was the goddess of fertility. So say if you were looking to get pregnant, you would perhaps walk up this mountain or hill, hill, excuse me, where the altar, the Baal altar and the Asherah pole were normally placed, and you would worship around this pole, and there would be concubines, prostitutes around it, and in order to worship Asherah, you would dance sexually and engage in simulating sexual acts, or perhaps just engaging in sexual acts with these prostitutes in hopes that it would somehow give you better luck with fertility and so forth. 
A good harvest, good fertility can be very enticing. But don't get me wrong, those are not bad things in and of themselves. Nikki and I have been blessed with two wonderful boys, David and Alex. And we're now trying to get pregnant with a third. We were pregnant with those first two right off the bat. But the third has been a different story. See, sadly, we had a miscarriage uh, very recently. And it's now been almost a year since we've been trying to have our third. Thus, we've now had a taste of the kinds of pains and agony associated with infertility that I know that some of you have endured to much greater extents, and our hearts continue to go out to you. Our desires to have another child have at times brought on thoughts of feelings of defeat and sadness. Now hear me out for a second. Desperately trying to have a child is not in and of itself a bad thing nor idolatrous. In fact, I have been so encouraged by my wife seeing her in tears late at night and then waking up the next morning and finding her reading her Bible and taking notes and praying and not forsaking our God throughout the process. No, see, rather, it's the process that we go through in our pursuits that reveal where idols might exist. How willing are you to go to get pregnant? Are you willing to walk all the way up to a hill to dance around a pole sexually engaging with prostitutes because you are so convinced that this is going to work? Are you willing to forsake your God because you think this will work? The Israelites were blessed by God to be in the land of Canaan, but they were led astray by the practices of the surrounding cultures they failed to drive out. Without much impetus, they quickly turned to these idols. It did not take long for them to forget their God and disobey his commandments. So, what is an idol? We need to understand this because the Israelites were deeply affected by their idolatry. If you're like me, when I think of idolatry, my mind immediately drifts toward an image of the golden figurine idol in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Have you guys seen this movie? It, it occurred to me last night that as time moves forward, some of you may not have seen that, and if that is you, <laughs> if that is you, I, I forgive you. Nonetheless, this golden figurine is actually referred to an idol in the movie, and Indiana Jones goes deep within this booby-trap-laden temple to retrieve it, and when he comes out, it is stolen by his opponent, and his opponent holds it up in front of a large group of South American natives, and they all bow down to it. They bow down to this golden figurine idol in worship. And this still occurs in our world today. 
people groups, unreached people groups. It exists. They have figurines, sculpted animals, idols that they bow down to, sing to, serve meals to, worship. That sounds very silly to us. But suppose I told you that you might engage in that same exact type of worship. The same misguided, silly, godless, empty, unproductive, insane kind of worship, you might engage in that today. What is an idol? Let me give you some modern-day examples. Career, money, friends, possessions, good grades, security, comfort, outward appearance. The heart is an idol factory. Anything can be an idol. If you are like me and you hear those things, those things do not sound that bad. No, actually, money can build orphanages and good, green, good grades means you worked really hard to get those. Those are not bad things in and of themselves. They at least can lead to good things, but us as humans have a tendency to twist these things, these good things. We have a tendency to make them toxic. We have a tendency to place them up on a pedestal and fix all our eyesight on them to the point where we cannot see anything else. We have a tendency to pursue these things in a very unhealthy fashion. When you take something really good, aside from God, and you make it the center of your heart's desire, then it has become an idol. Anything that you pursue or treasure more than God is an idol. Anything that you pursue or treasure more than God is an idol. Your job, your friends, beauty, these are not bad things in and of themselves. The problem is what we do with them. Some of them place the wrong kind of time and energy toward them. Some of us say, if we can just accrue this next level of net worth, if I can just achieve this next status with, this, with these types of friends, if I can just make this part of my body look like this, then I will be worth so much more. Your life becomes all about these things. How about food, comfort, entertainment? Not bad things in and of themselves. Again, I like going to concerts. I like going to sporting events. We hoot and holler. My small group will be able to tell you that one of my most favorite things in the world is barbecue. <laughs> but let me tell you about barbecue Sometimes I'll visit cities for work like Memphis, Dallas, Kansas City, great barbecue cities. But prior to the trip, I will spend hours and hours researching menus, <laughs> mapping out my food schedule while I'm here for work. Work is meant to glorify God. Our careers are meant to glorify God. 
How silly does that sound? Even right now, we learn about how God delivered his people out of Egypt straight through the middle of the Red Sea. And yet, we refuse to take the time to understand how that applies to our lives today. Even right now, we think about what it is we're going to place on the grill later today. We think about what it is we need to purchase to decorate the perfect living room. We think about, we are far more concerned about the next Star Wars release. We worship Star Wars. It's all kinds of flash and dance that exists out in the world today. And it's not easy to keep up. And our time gets diverted from things that matter much more like family and loved ones. But remember, anything can be an idol. To many of us, that might seem a little harsh if I were to tell you that kids or grandparents or spouses can be an idol. Can they be? Absolutely. But let me just cut to the chase. Let me just give you a little application as an illustration. If you are a Christian, Jesus is your number one. And if you're married, your spouse is your very close number two. Jesus is your number one. Your spouse is your number two. Treasuring God most before anything allows us to love our families more than we were previously capable. Treasuring God most before anything allows us to engage with our kids and shepherd them toward knowing who Jesus is. Treasuring God most allows us to make friendships with people in the neighborhood and eventually transform those into real-life, true, intimate sisterhood and brotherhood, family the way God intended it. If you are looking for happiness, for success, what's the main problem with worshiping Baal? The problem is that idols produce nothing good for you. All they do is produce distance from God. Idolatry says, I have a better way than God's way. Idolatry makes us find our worth in things and possessions. Idolatry creates a bitter heart toward God when we don't get what it is that we want when we want it. Idolatry places things right in front of God to the point where we cannot see God. Idolatry brings upon God's wrath. And Gideon knew this all too well. Even his own family and probably himself engaged in Baal worship, he knew that if he tore down the Baal altar, he'd have a lot of angry people on his hands. See, when we pursue idols, we get very defensive over them, don't we? By the way, here we see Gideon's reluctant leadership and, frankly, cowardice rear its head. God told him to tear down the Baal altar, but he waits until the night so that the people won't see him because he knew the mob would be out for blood. The Israelites were so enamored by the thought of a great harvest, great success, that they were willing to acknowledge both their God and the Baal God. The problem was that with that scenario is that you are not actually worshiping God. You are only worshiping your own success. Because success and pride were so important to these Israelites, Gideon's father Joash, who originally put up the Baal altar, his own family, had to prevent the Israelites from killing Gideon. And thankfully, Joash was successful, verse 31. 
And the Lord protected Gideon, verse 32, 34. And because the Midianites were quickly approaching and Gideon was God's chosen leader, he was able to rally warriors around him and the story of Gideon continues. The Israelites had a, another battle to face in the, in, the, in the Midianites. But God would not let the Israelites face the Midianites until he had them confront their idols. And that is often how God works in our lives. What is it that compelled the Israelites to see Baal as their treasured God? Throughout the Old Testament, God is constantly reminding his people that he delivered them out of Egypt. Why is he constantly reminding them of this story, this historical event? It's because of the same exact reason we do. We forget. We forget God. We are imperfect. We don't just forget God. We are completely and utterly broken. All those times that you lusted after something or someone, all those times that you could not forgive someone or they could not forgive you, all those relationships of our past that went haywire, we just have a tendency to mess things up. God's chosen people messed things up 3,000 years ago during the time of the judges, and we see that in our lives today. But, but thankfully, we have a God who raises up judges. We have a God who delivers his people. We have a God who sent his son to be the perfection and righteousness that we are incapable of being on our own. Thankfully, we have a God who treasures us far more than we are capable of treasuring anything. He knows exactly who we are. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, taking on our sins on the cross so that we would ultimately treasure him again. Are you treasuring him? Are there idols in your life? Can those altars be broken down? Does it need to be replaced by the altar of grace? What altars do you need to tear down? Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for the altar of grace. Lord, we just come to you asking for your guidance, asking for your counsel, Lord. What idols do we need to tear down in our lives? Would Jesus be number one? And it's his name we pray. Amen.